listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Let me pray and we'll dive into what God has for us. Father, we thank you so much for today. Lord, all the, the activity and all the, the wonderful blessings that's happening today, Lord, as we, we get to baptize people and, and we get to celebrate the fact that they're professing their faith and, and later on we'll be voting them in as members of our church, as part of our faith family, as we gather and go um, do, to do your work for your kingdom, Lord. Um, thank you so much that we get to celebrate so much today. Father, but today we open up the word and as we've been walking through the book of Luke, we have to take what's coming next. And Lord, um, if anybody's read ahead, they know that um, what is coming next, what God has for us the next two days is some woes. That's what Jesus says. And Lord, I, I just pray that as we walk through this passage, it's here for our edifications. It's, it's here to correct us. It is here to make us more like Christ. Lord, again, I, I pray that you would help me to have its tone that's not overbearing and feel like people are being talked down to, Lord, but Lord, a tone that shows a, a fellow struggler who um, simply had to, to think through this along with everybody else today. Lord, I pray that you would help me have that tone today. And Lord, I pray that we will receive what the Lord has for us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1989, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, asked Jimmy Johnson to be the second coach of the team following Tom Landry. They only ever had one coach, and that was Tom Landry. And subsequent to that, in January of 1990, Jimmy Johnson divorced his wife of 26 years. Just flat out divorced her. Like, he got hired, and so he divorced her and accepted the job and, and in second, accepting that job, he's, he's leaving the, the University of Miami. That's where he was coaching before. He said he needed a wife while coaching on the college level for social functions and to show families that he would be looking out for their sons. In pro football, however, she was an unnecessary distraction to winning. He said winning football was his number one priority and his two sons second. How tragic. In contrast to this, Tom Landry, the former coach of the Dallas Cowboys, said, the thrill of knowing Jesus is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I thank God, I thank God, has, put, I thank God has put me in a very special place, and he expects me to use it to his glory in everything I do. Whether coaching football or talking to the press, I'm always a Christian. Christ is first, family second, and football Third. So over the next two weeks, we will read about Jesus challenging a group of people who have misplaced priorities. And that's kind of what I've entitled these next two messages, Misplaced Priorities. I do not believe anything that Jesus says over the next two weeks has found its way on a coffee mug or in a little plaque for us to put up on the wall or hang on our refrigerators. They've never made a bumper sticker out of some of these statements. Most likely when we have come across these passages in our reading as we've been reading through the book of Luke or maybe we've come up against them in, in the book of, of Matthew, we probably, as we read them, we think of other people. Oh boy, that person really needs to hear that. That's just our natural tendency often to do so. 
But who is Jesus speaking to here? Who is he speaking to? After hearing the story about the two coaches, you probably think that Jesus is about to take Jimmy Johnson to task about what he did with his wife. Tragic, absolutely tragic. But that's not Jesus' audience. His audience is Tom Landry and Joe Soakis and every person sitting in a pew this morning professing to be a Christian. That's his audience. That's who he's speaking to. He is not challenging those who are far off and, and do not believe. Jesus is challenging those who profess to be followers of Jesus. He is speaking to people who are religiously active, but the hearts are far from God. He is speaking to the religious and calling out their hypocrisy. That's what he's doing. He's calling out their hypocrisy. Let me read the passage and you will get a sense to what Jesus is doing. We pick this up in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 44, and then we'll take the second half next week. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. Nothing new here. They reclined at the table to eat dinner. Just here's an invitation. Come and eat with me. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, didn't God make both the outside and the inside? Shouldn't both be cleaned? Shouldn't both be glorifying God? But give, us, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice in the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Like I said, um, you probably won't find any of these statements on a coffee mug or a bumper sticker or a magnet to put on a refrigerator, right? But we should be thankful that this is here for us to learn. Remember, in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, the Scripture is used to correct us, to rebuke us, to build us up, and all Scripture is used for those purposes, if Christianity was some myth handed down, why would these passages be in here? You ever stop and think about that? Of some of the things that, that we got to read as Christians, as Jesus is taking the task, these religious leaders, like, why? If this is just some myth that gets handed down from place to place, all the places, like, we just read, right, um, Psalms 51, and that was about a man that God says is after his, his own heart, David, who, who, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed Bathsheba's husband. And we saw him repenting of that. If this is just a myth, why would any of that be in here? You ever stop and think about that? It wouldn't. This is a historical account. There, there's, there's so much history here and there's so many, it's the same ways we get our history is the same ways that we have received our Bible. It's pretty remarkable. So let's just start by defining who Jesus is talking to. Who are these Pharisees? 
Members, these guys are members of a Jewish party that exercised strict observance of the traditional and written law. Like they were, as John Piper might say, they were teetotalers about the law. In other words, they, they followed it to the T. You may think to yourself, if all they had was the law, why is Jesus so upset that they're following the law? Well, it's not that he was upset about them following the law. The problem is, is the Pharisees added to the law. They added many things that were not written in God's word. And they did so in order to make themselves look special, to make themselves look pious, to make themselves look righteous. They added to it, which we see in the beginning of the passage. This is one of the things that they kind of added to it. The Pharisees was astonished that Jesus did not wash for dinner. Now, yes, we tell our kids, go wash your hands for dinner because, you know, they might have been out playing and, and doing different things. Yes, that's not what he's talking about here. They take it so much further. The man was shocked, shocked that Jesus would eat without washing his hands. To understand why this was considered socially unacceptable, it helps to know that Pharisees really did believe that cleanliness was next to godliness, which is not in the Bible. I hate to break that bubble or bust that bubble, but I know people think that maybe that's in the Bible, but that's nowhere in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. But they truly believed it, that cleanliness is, is, was next to godliness. The issue for them was not personal hygiene, but ceremonial purity. So before they had anything to eat, they had water poured over their hands to remove the defilement contracted by their contact with a sinful world. That's pretty interesting. I mean, if we had to do that, we'd be washing our hands all the time. Right? It, it shows you their attitude. It shows you that they're saying, okay, we got to wash our hands because we're in contact with the sinful world. In, in essence, what they're saying is, oh, I, I don't have sin. Think about that. That's what they're doing. That's what they're saying. Some Pharisees carry this concern to an obsessive extreme, going through an elaborate cleansing ritual before meals and on other occasions. It was all about the outside show. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm purer, I'm more holy, I'm more righteous than these other people. I'm washing myself from these people. It is important to understand that there was nothing morally wrong with what Jesus did. The only thing Jesus violated was a man-made rule. That's what he violated, and that's what they were so upset about. And that's why Jesus can call them to task on it. That's why we can't say, well, all they had is the law, and they're trying to follow the law. Why is Jesus so upset? No, they added to the law, and that's what he's truly upset about, these extra-biblical rules that they made up. The fundamental issue with the Pharisees is that this is how they justify themselves before God. This is how they justify themselves before God, and also how they determine who was and was not holy, set apart for God's use. In other words, because they do all these things, because they follow all these rules, because they do all these um, extra biblical things, that, that means that they are the ones that are set apart for God's use. They are the holy ones. They are the righteous ones. Here is a group of people who believe they are pleasing God, um, but as Jesus shows us, their hearts are far from him. Their hearts are far from him. This is the warning of the passage. It is the warning of this week and next week. Let me put it on screen for you. It is, it is possible for you and me to genuinely believe that we are doing God's work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will, 
yet to be deceived and to experience eternal damnation. So when I pray this, like these, what we're talking about, these woes that Jesus is walking through here, they have eternal significance. Because let me read it again. It is possible for you and me to genuinely believe that we are doing God's work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will, yet to be deceived and to experience eternal damnation. In other words, if we are putting our justification before God in anything other than Christ and him crucified, then we fall into this camp. Now, I'm not talking about the times that we struggle because we all struggle to do that. You know, that's what all, how people change is all about. It's showing us all the different places that we don't believe the gospel and we're worshiping and the created thing instead of worshiping, worshiping the creator. Well, yes, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those that justify themselves before God and rest in all that they do. And many times what they, they truly rest in is the fact that they can point to what they do and say, I do it better than that person, so therefore it justifies me. And that is the number one Pharisee thing that they do all the time. So it's important. It has eternal significance. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And it's repeated three times today, and he's going to repeat it three more times next week. How can we be, de be deceived? How is it possible? Jesus, he tells us here. He gives us six different ways that we could be deceived and, and led astray. And, and the Lord said to him in verse 39, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, do not he who made the outside make the inside also? Now, there's absolutely no doubt that Luke put this right after, just like we did last week. We looked at him telling the people that if your eye is darkened, if you see me differently, if you see the wrong things, it'll darken the inside of you. And then he comes right after that and he smacks down the Pharisees and says, hey, you guys are so worried about cleaning the outside of the cup, but the, the cup is dirty. Now, you guys have experienced this. If you have a dishwasher in your house, um, I don't mess with that thing. I, I, I don't do it. But I know oftentimes that whenever you pull the thing out and you pick the cup up, what has happened? The cup has not been cleaned on the inside. Well, you're obviously not going to be able to use it that way. You're not going to put something else in this until you actually take it to the sink and, and wash it, which would probably have been easier to do in the first place. But I digress before I get too far down the rabbit hole. Um, uh, but yeah, he, so he's talking about, no, the, the inside is filthy. It's like you clean up the outside, but your heart is far from me. What are some ways that we can be self-righteous? Because this is the sin that Jesus is revealing. It's self-righteousness. Cleansing the outside without a heart change. So what are some ways that we can be self-righteous without knowing it? After all, self-righteousness wears many disguises, doesn't it? It's... Sometimes we don't even know it. That's why we need a, a body of believers to come around us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to show us the blindness of our sin because sin blinds. So where, in some ways, do we fall into this self-righteousness? Well, one of the ways we think that, that because of our religious practices that we are okay with God. Like, I came to church, check, I'm good. Or, I, I did read the Bible once this week, check, I'm good. Um, after I got really aggravated or something really uh, 
really hard happened to me, I stopped and prayed, so I'm good. But no, that's not what God is after. It cost him his son on the cross to bring you into his family. He's after all of you, your heart and everything. We think because of how we pray that we are trusting in him, not in ourselves. We think because of how we live that we are doing better than the people around us. As Trevin Wax says this, he says it this way, self-righteousness stinks. Unfortunately, we are the last to smell it on ourselves. We're the last ones to smell it, right? We prayed all our good works before God and before others, thinking that these works will increase our stature. And hopefully, it's not how we justify ourselves before God, because there's only one way to do that, and that's through Christ. Jesus says to them and to us, if we're falling into this, or maybe we need a corrective today, and we need to really evaluate why we do the things we do, Jesus says, you fools. (laughs) All this outward works is worthless if your heart has not been changed. If your heart has not been changed. You know, sometimes the interesting thing about that is oftentimes what God does is he brings, he he draws us close to him, right? He's constantly drawing us close to him. But whenever we're not believers, sometimes that, that he draws us into maybe a, a church or a, a family or, or some things, and, and we do some things along the way, and then somewhere along the way, God actually changes our heart. So I, it just begs the question for you today, has God changed your heart? Are you born again? That's the, def, the delineation of whether or not you're saved. Are you born again? Are you a new person, a new creature in Christ. Jesus says, you fools, all this outward work is worthless if your heart has not been changed. This is why we read Psalm 5110. It says in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jesus kind of gets at the heart in verse 41. He says, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Giving alms is the showing of mercy, a great act of love for fellow humans. If one gives sacrificial attention to inside things, those things tied to how you think, what you value and desire, the outside will look different. In other words, that we don't try to change and modify behavior we're trying to change your heart, which will change your behavior. It starts by the way you think. The way you think changes your desires and your values, which changes your volition, which changes the way you act. And that's why he determined and decided to use the foolishness of preaching to hear God's word so that it will change your understanding, that therefore will change your heart, your values, your desires, that will change what you do. What we do on the outside should flow from and be constant with what's on the inside. It's not always that way. Like, we we are not perfect. I know the world outside loves calling Christians hypocrites, but really, anytime that someone wants to call that claim on me, that's a great opportunity for me to share the gospel. It's like, no, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm a saint who still sins. I still struggle. I have sin in my life, and I need Jesus. So thank you for seeing that in my life. Do you have him? Do you have him in your life? 
Because I know none of us are perfect and we're all a work in progress. This is how we can be deceived. We miss the heart of the matter. Jesus points out the Pharisees' heart issue in three woe statements. A woe is an exclamation of judgment. And in some ways, and I think there's, it's a both and, it's not an either or. Yes, he's pronouncing judgment, but I also believe that there's this connotation of it that, that it's a sadness over those who fail to recognize the true misery of their condition. That's what a woe does. It, yes, it's an exclamation of judgment, but it's also this sadness over the fact that you're blind to the position that you're in. And man, there's so much more that God has for you. Luke eleven forty two begins our first woe, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So he's showing you the outside thing and an inside thing. That's what he's doing with, with just about all of these woes. Jesus, Jesus begins with this compare and contrast here to teach us um, as he often does, right? He, he uses compare and contrast a lot. He's comparing tithing with the neglecting justice in the love of God. So he's comparing these two things within this woe. Let me say this before we look at the comparison. When we look into the law of God, many times we're trying to figure out what things are we supposed to keep and what things are we not supposed to keep. What things are we supposed to do and what things are we not supposed to do? What things are we do is in the, or part of the old covenant and what things are part of the new covenant? As a believer, we're, we're trying to, sometimes we struggle with that, sometimes we think through that. There's a lot of passages in, in the New Testament that challenge us, um, us to think through those different things. Is it valid today? Is it not valid today? Is it something that um, was just part of the first century? Is it something that we need to carry into? And, and there seems to be two main ways that we determine this. One is asking, did Jesus fulfill this? So in other words, do we see something in the Old Testament, in, into the law, that Jesus then fulfills? And just, just to give you an example, nobody here brought an animal today to sacrifice for their sins. We know that we don't need to do that anymore. Christ is the once and for all sacrifice for everyone's sins, those that he's called to believe. The second way that we see and try to work through, does, does this, is this valid? Should we follow it? Should we not follow it? Is, does Jesus require it of his followers? Did he say that you must do this? When he does, usually when he brings something from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what we find quite often is Jesus tells you the command or tells you the law, and then he comes along and gives you the heart part underneath of it. It's pretty fascinating the way he does that, and it's so helpful. Let me give you a simple example. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Command. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he gives you the heart thing. So Jesus is bringing forth, are we, is it okay to commit adultery? No, it's not. In fact, let me go one further. You know, why are you struggling with watching pornography? Because you are lusting after people and you're coveting something that God has not given you. That's what he's saying. He goes to the heart issue. But he brings that forward. So we can say, okay, hey, we know that that's valid for us also. That's valid for us also. If Jesus pulls something out of the Old Testament and tells us we have to do it, we always know there's no doubt that's for us. 
Now notice what Jesus says about tithing. He says, these you ought to have done. In other words, he's comparing tithing with, with love of God, and, and, and he's saying, but you should have done the first thing. You should have tithed. But you also should have done this. And what he's comparing is this out, outside action with your heart. Because he's saying the easy thing to do is to write a check to tithe. The hard thing to do is show justice, mercy, and love. That's the harder thing to do. So you should have, yes, done that. So he's bringing it forward, said, yes, it's valid. You should have done that. Giving the first fruits to the Lord is for us as well. But you also should be called because, because I have changed your heart, because I have given you a new the spirit that dwells within you, my spirit. You should do the harder thing also. The Pharisees should continue to do it, and so should we. But of course, there's a warning here. There's a question that Jesus is asking the Pharisees and asking us. Do we pride ourselves on following convenient laws or do we spend ourselves expressing costly love? Do we pride ourselves on following convenient laws or do we spend ourselves expressing costly love? This is an allusion to Micah 6, 8 where God calls his people to act justly, to love faithfully, and to walk humbly with your God. See, God's people had failed to give justice to the poor and express kindness to the needy. These things are the overflow of walking humbly with God, but they weren't characteristics of the Pharisees in any way. They wouldn't give mercy to nobody. They showed very little love. The question for us is whether or not we are willing to go out of our comfort zones and get our hands dirty in practical ministry. Should we tithe? Yes. But that is, according to Jesus, the easy part. I believe this is how the idea that the, the paid staff of the church does all the ministry. I think that's how that idea crept into America because like, we're consumeristic by default because of the, the massive wealth that we have compared to the rest of the world. But this whole idea that, 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 that yeah, we, we, we write the check so that the paid staff of the church can do the ministry when the Bible is the op absolute opposite where it says that the paid staff of the church is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Our job is to help you to go and, and be the hands and feet of Christ all around the world. That's one way that we, I was trying to think of, like, how, how do we do that? How do we take the easier law but not step into the harder part that Jesus is talking about? Okay, I'll, I'll write the check and let these people go do it, but I'm not going to show love. I'm not going to show mercy. I'm not going to walk across the street to my neighbor that's what Jesus is, is telling the Pharisees. That's what he's reminding us of today. If you're not willing to get your hands dirty and do not do the work of the ministry, seeking justice and spreading love, then maybe we are deceived. Maybe we are deceived. And the thing is, is we have the greatest reason to do both. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. This love is displayed on the cross and it costs Jesus' life. We are deceived if we follow the convenient laws 
but do not spend ourselves expressing costly love. Which moves us to the second woe. In verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. This one's a little bit simpler to unpack. It asks this question of us, Are we content with the approval of God, or do we desire the applause of man? Are we content with the approval of God? Just stop and think about that. How much of your anxiety, how much of your worry is rooted in the fact that you're not content with what God says about you, about who you are? See, the Pharisees were always jockeying for a better position. The men with the best reputation, the men who kept their hands pristine and their ties precise. In other words, they they did everything exactly right according to the law and all their extra biblical things were given priority seating in a local synagogue. The better a man's reputation, the closer he sat to the front. Unlike in Baptist churches where everyone wants to get to the back. They sat in the front and it showed prestige. It showed honor. It's saying, I'm more holier than you. God forbid us. And sometimes even, and I, I think I've been in churches that's done this. Like they put people on stage and then they turn and face to the congregation. But that's what they were seeking. That's what they were looking for. That was their reward. That's what their desires were. Instead of drawing attention to God and his word, the scribes and Pharisees use these things to draw attention to themselves. Look at me. And we see in them a tendency in our hearts, in our own hearts. That's why I phrased the question the way I did. Are we content with the approval of God or do we desire the applause of man? Are we so content to enjoy God's smile that shines upon you each and every day? When you wake up and the sun shines on you, it's because God did that for you. When you wake up and you yawn because you're taking a deep breath, God did that for you. And the thing is about the applause of man, it's, it's like dead to your soul because death to your soul. And the reason why that is because once we receive it, we can't get enough of it. It never satisfies. We want more and more. And then we become less and less content about what God says about who we are and what he has done in his approval, of course, through Christ. Are you so content to enjoy God's smile that shines upon you by his grace to the point that you are dead to what men say to or about you? Do we live by the fear of man? Do you know how how much anxiety in your life would vanish if you would get this right? Let me give you a reminder. Paul does this in in, in one verse in, in the book of Romans. To all those in Rome, so he can say to all those sitting here at Mountain City Church this morning, who are loved by God, there's the first thing, you are loved by God. He set his love upon you while you were still a sinner. 
You are loved by God. Do you think you can change that love? You are loved by God and called. He called you out. He called you from darkness into light. As you heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit went and changed your heart and you became born again. He called you. He called you to himself to be saints. You're set apart. No, we're not perfect. Yes, we are sinners. That we're saints who still sin, but you are a saint. In other words, he's trying to get you the picture of where you're going. He's trying to show you the hope that you have, that one day the sin, the death, the sickness all fall away. We will be with him, a saint with him, not worrying about man's approval or what man says, because we will be with him. That's what Romans reminds us of, who we are. That's who you are. Let's pray for this in our lives and in each other's lives. Let's pray that we would rest in that, that we would live in that, that we would walk in that. And for the final woe, we see in verse 44, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. This is another reference that everyone at the dinner would know because he's pulling it from the Old Testament. What is Jesus saying here? He's, for the answer, we go to the book of Numbers. And it says this in Numbers 19, 16, whoever, is, is, whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. So this idea is, is you are defiled if you touch a dead person. Now, they're going so far as to say if you even touch a grave, that you are defiled. So what is, think about what Jesus is saying to these guys. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. In other words, he's saying, look, guys, you are defiling other people. That's what he's saying here. By the way you live, by the religion that you're teaching. You've been held up as, as the example, as the, the teachers of the Jewish religion, but you are defiling people as they come in contact with you just like if you would step over an unmarked grave. Because of these regulations, the Israelites were usually very careful to whitewash their graves so that people would notice them and avoid them. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like unmarked graves. This was a condemning comparison. They were not just unclean inside like a dirty cup, but also dead inside like a box of rotten remains. Jesus was also saying that the Pharisees had a corrupting influence on anyone who came into contact with them. Because they had a reputation for strict holiness, people followed their spiritual example and they were being led astray. Oh boy, now we have the internet that anybody can get on and lead people astray. I, I beg of you, please, you were not designed to listen to 20 sermons a week and to try to apply them to your life. You are not designed to listen to commentator after commentator after commentator who usually has no oversight over them and try to figure out what the Bible says and what God wants for your life. It is so easy for us to be corrupted these days. But the warning is actually to us to not to corrupt others. That means we, we need to be close to the Word of God. We must know the Word of God. 
I know none of us know it perfectly and know everything there is to know, but as a, a body of believers, I'm pretty sure we can figure it out. We can at least get close enough that we ain't going to lead somebody astray. That's for sure. Because there are many people in this room far smarter than I am that it will really help us out if we get stuck in those situations. So these Pharisees, rather than leading to holiness, is bringing these people into something deadly. And he goes back to self-righteousness. Which brings us to our third question. Are we hindering people's salvation? Are we hindering people's salvation? Can, can we see how deadly our hypocrisy could be? Can we see how deadly it could be? Not only for our own soul, but we might be leaving, leading others astray. Trying to be one thing on the outside when you're, you're another thing on the inside. You put up this good front, but inside your dead man's bones. You know, that even goes, even if you're, you're born again and you are a Christian, and you're putting up this false front and not allowing people to see, I'm a struggler just like you. You're teaching them that they can't be honest. You're teaching them that, it's, it, that they can't just rest in Christ, that they got to put up some kind of front and say, I'm okay, it's all good. It's not. It's, as we often say, and I just got it from Chandler, right? It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. Because the Spirit's dwelled in us and we have the Word and we're, he's, His purpose is for us to be sanctified. So we're, we're trying to be something on the outside, different than the inside, focusing on little things, but missing the big things. Craving more recognition, these things are spiritually deadly, not just to you, but also to others. Even if nobody knows that the, the corpse inside is corrupting your family, your friends, and your church. Ken Hughes says this, all of us inevitably communicate what we are. We can ex externally do all the right religious things, but we will ultimately impart what is within. The people around us will see the artificiality, the effectiveness, the elitism, the anger, the hostility, the hatred, the sus suspicion, the soreness, the inner blasphemies. We leave our fingerprints on each other's souls for Christ or for unbelief. So my job today is to call you to repentance and beg you to examine your own soul. It is possible for you and me to genuinely believe that we are doing God's work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will, yet to be deceived and to be, experience eternal damnation. Let us humbly hide under the shelter of Christ's mercy. He lavishes his mercy and grace on us each and every day. Come out of hiding. It's okay. You're with fellow strugglers. We all struggle together. We need the mercy of Christ. And this is the one thing that scribes and Pharisees miss the most. Man, they would give nobody mercy. So don't miss it. This is what separates true relig religion that brings glory to God from sincere religion that warrants wrath from God. Are you hiding under the wings of Christ's mercy today? 
I urge every person in this room, hide under the wings of Christ's mercy. If you have never trusted in him to save you from your sins, hide in him today. See that he has taken the condemnation of God the Father that you deserve upon himself. He has endured the wrath that we warrant through his death on the cross. And he has risen from the grave, conquering sin and death so that all who hide in him, all who turn from their sin and themselves to trust in him as Savior, Lord, and King of the universe will be saved. Hide under the shelter of Christ's mercy. And once you do, Christian, live there and don't leave. Don't rely on yourself. Rely on his mercy. Every day, every moment, humbly hide under the shelter the wings of Christ's mercy. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for these warnings that you have given us, Lord. Or maybe as we walk through these things, we see ourselves six months ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, and we get to worship all that you have done in our lives. Maybe today we're seeing them for the first time and we need to repent so that six months, a year, five years from now, we can rejoice in all that you have done. Lord, I just pray that we can hide in your mercy, it is sufficient that we will not justify ourselves but trust in you to be justified before a holy God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again. And may the Lord bless your week.